Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. I do want to welcome all of you to our service today, those here in our celebration worship. I was able to spend just a few moments in our summit worship a little earlier, packed house, both places, so thankful. So many college students here back today, and that's an encouragement. Uh, I don't know about you, but this has been a great morning already. Uh, I had a, uh, just an emotional weekend uh, with family stuff and, and uh, extended family uh, stuff. But uh, to come to church and to be able to go to a Sunday school class with, uh, with people that are encouraging and positive and to be able to pray together and, and discuss God's word and then just the fellowship in the hallways and then to be able to worship the Lord. Uh, God has uh, something special for those who will be faithful to come and join uh, each Sunday morning in his house. And I hope you've experienced uh, the balm that I have experienced uh, today. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, we began a message series last week uh, that I've titled A Royal Mess, Life Lessons from Flawed Leaders. And our plan, at least, is to spend a bunch of weeks studying First and Second Samuel. Uh, today we come to our very first flawed leader, and I'm excited to share this with you because his story, uh, though it's a sad story, it's an interesting story. There's much drama, there's suspense, there's mystery. Uh, there's a surprise ending. There, it's, a, it's a cliffhanger. And in the life of this flawed leader, we're going to see that he struggled with some of the same things that we struggle with. We're going to see that he made a poor decision without fully appreciating the danger that was involved. And then finally, we're going to see that he paid an ultimate price because of his sin, because of his decision. And then, and I hope you'll hang with me till the end, because the end is the sermon. At the end, we're going to see that he had a great need, we have a great need, and how God meets that need in Christ. And so all of this, and we'll end up focusing on Christ. The, the flawed leader we'll focus on today, his name is Eli. We spoke of him a little bit last week. He is the high priest of Israel at this point in history. Uh, he is the religious leader for the entire nation because there was no king, because there was no judge in the land at the time. He was the highest ranking political leader. Uh, he is the he is the one who would lead worship, the one who would lead in the tabernacle, in the sacrifices, uh, but he was a flawed man. He was a corrupt man, and we'll see that today. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of scripture today, so I'm going to give you just a little jet tour, and then we'll zero in on some, some verses. Uh, if you remember from last week, 1 Samuel chapter 1 is the story of Hannah. Uh, Hannah and Samuel. Hannah was unable to conceive and have a child. She prayed. God uh, chose to bless her with a child. We talked about how all of that worked this last week. But then she took that child and she gave him back to the Lord and essentially took him to the tabernacle, uh, to the high priest Eli, and gave him up for adoption. 
And then he becomes, uh, in a sense, a son of Eli, and he grows up there in the temple uh, to serve the Lord all of his days. So that's 1 Samuel chapter 1. And then we come to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're reintroduced to the two biological sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. And so these two sons, they're adults at this stage in the story. These two sons of Eli uh, were very corrupt men. They were priests. They weren't the high priest, but they were priests and served uh, there in the tabernacle. And we see something of their corruption. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, and if you don't mind, just keep your Bibles open today. If you don't have one, there's one in the... Um, maybe in the pew rack in front of you if you're here in the celebration service or pull it up on your phone because we're going to bounce back and forth in these few chapters. But 1 Samuel 2.12 says, Eli's sons were wicked men and they did not respect the Lord. And then we see an example of their wickedness, verse 13, uh, or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people for when anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container, the kettle, the cauldron or cooking pot. So this is the very first fondue. <laughs> so the worshipers would come and they would bring their offering and these two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, they would want to consume the meat, the best cuts of the meat that would be offered to the Lord. And so they would just send one of their servants in with a big with a big pitchfork and they would scoop out the best of the meat and they were disrespecting the worship of the Lord. They were discouraging the worshipers. It was a very, very serious thing. If you skip all the way down to um, uh, verse 17, it says, so the servant's sin, this is talking about Hophni and Phinehas, the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering uh, with, with contempt. So we meet Hophni and Phinehas here. Uh, well, what about Hannah? Uh, she was the focus of chapter one. Well, she pops back up in chapter two. And I want to read to you at least a little bit of that. If you skip down to verse uh, 21. It says, the Lord paid attention to Hannah's need. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. So this is after Hannah, after having Samuel, she gives birth to five more children. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Hannah gave God one child. God gave her back five children. Uh, that's, uh, I think that's worth noting. Whatever you give to God, God will be a greater giver to you. Does God still work that way? You better believe it. We see it in the Old Testament. Hannah experienced it here, but we see it even in the words of Jesus in the New Testament. Listen to this. Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap for the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You can't outgive God. Now, let me just talk a moment about financial giving uh, today. Uh, we don't talk about that often in our church. Uh, perhaps we should talk about it more than we do. But I want you to see this as, uh, as a part of our walk with the Lord. 
And so the Bible says that when we give, it honors the Lord. When we give, it pays for ministry. By the way, uh, the last year, I think, has been one of the best years in the recent history of our church. We have seen so many good, thing happen, good things happen. We have seen so many people unite with our church. We have seen so many ministries succeed. The Lord is doing something great here. And when you give, you support that. I want to tell you that God is blessing our church, but we have some financial needs. There's more that we want to do, that we need to do, and we need people to be faithful and sacrificial in their giving. But also here, listen, there's this principle that when we give, God honors the faithfulness of his people. Now, there are a lot of ways that God may give back, and uh, sometimes it's financial, and many times it's, it's in other ways. But you can't outgive God. And here Hannah gives one son without really losing that son, and God gives her back five children. Listen, when we give, when we sacrifice of what is important to us, our treasure. When we give, God honors the giving. I've been a pastor for a lot of years now, and I've talked to people about every subject under the sun. If you knew some of the things some people have said to me through the years, you wouldn't believe it. But I've never had somebody who was a faithful and a sacrificial giver. I've never had somebody say to me that they regret or have ever regretted giving to the Lord because you can't outgive God. And Hannah experienced that here. Hannah experienced. Well, what about Samuel? So we've seen uh, Hophni and Phinehas, and we've seen uh, what Hannah's doing, but what is Samuel doing? Well, I want you to see that as well. Look at verse 26, chapter 2, verse 26. I told you we'd be skipping around. It says, by contrast, contrast to these wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, by contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Now, I'm going to test your Bible knowledge here. If you've been in church very long, and it's okay if you haven't, but that verse sounds familiar, right? So, it says here that Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Is there another time the Bible makes a similar statement about another person? Yes. Who is that person, if you know? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. I've got that verse here. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with the people. You see a connection. There's nothing accidental in the Bible. And what's interesting is the nation of Israel is going to be rescued through the life of this little boy, Samuel, who's growing in wisdom and stature and in favor of God, in the favor of God and people. That is a, that is a shadow, that is a sneak peek into another boy who will grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people and God will use that second boy to rescue the world. And that second son, that second boy is Christ. Uh, so it's a, it's a reminder. It's a reminder. Now, let's turn to 1 Samuel 3, because here's where things get really exciting. 1 Samuel chapter 3, uh, this is uh, oh, it's a great story. 
so Samuel is there. He's serving as uh, just a servant there in the tabernacle. And, and uh, we don't know how old he was. I'm just guessing he was uh, probably, probably a junior higher. You know, maybe he's, uh, uh, I don't know, 14 years old. Would that be a junior higher, 14, 13? And uh, we pick up with the story. Let's, let's begin in 1 Samuel 3, 3. It says, before the lamp of God had gone out, Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was located. Now, the ark was a piece of furniture. A lot of you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, and some of you are a generation removed from that one direction or the other. But uh, it's, a, it's a piece of furniture that represented the presence of God. And the plan is next week, I'm just going to preach the whole time on this ark, so we'll save the description for that. So, Samuel is, is, is trying to sleep. He's uh, there in the tabernacle. The ark is there that represented the presence of God. A uh, very special thing to the, uh, to the Israelites. Verse 4 says, And the Lord called to Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. So Samuel's laying there, and he hears something. And it's, it sounds like this, I suppose. Samuel, Samuel. And so he thinks it's Eli, uh, his adopted father, so to speak. He thinks it's Eli, the high priest. So he gets up and he runs down the hallway to where Eli is sleeping. He wakes him up and he says, um, what do you need? I heard you calling me. So what does, uh, what does Eli say? We're still in verse 5. I didn't call, Eli replied. Go back and lie down. So he went down. He went in and lay down. Uh, Eli said, why are you waking me up? I don't need you. Go back to bed. And then it happens again. I won't read all these verses because they're repetitive, but he hears it again. Samuel, Samuel goes, does the same thing, goes back to Eli. Eli says, listen, I go to, go to bed. And then it happens again. And so he goes back to, um, back to Eli. Well, now Eli is beginning to understand that something is up. And so I'm going to read, I'm about halfway through verse 8. It says, then Eli understood that the Lord was calling the boy. So it dawned on Eli that maybe this isn't just a bad dream, but maybe God is speaking to Samuel. So verse 9 of chapter 3, he told Samuel, go and lie down. If he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now, don't you know that Samuel's heart was beating out of his chest? So he goes and he lays down and he's waiting for God to speak with him. And he gets more than he, uh, than he expected. Look at verse 10. The Lord came. So God doesn't, doesn't just speak this time. The Lord comes in some way. Stood there. The Lord is standing there and called as before Samuel, Samuel. So Samuel responded, speak for your servant is listening. What do you think God's going to say to Samuel? This is very interesting. The Lord said to Samuel, verse, 10, verse 11, I'm about to do something in Israel that everyone who hears about it will shudder. He said, this is going to be big news. On that day, I will carry out against Eli everything I said about his family from the beginning to the end. He said, something bad's going to happen. And the things I told Eli I would do, if he didn't straighten out, 
I'm going to do those things. Skip down to verse 14. We'll come back to 13. Therefore, I have sworn to Eli's family. This is still part of the message. The iniquity of Eli's family, that's the sin, will never be wiped out by either sacrifice or offering. So here's what's interesting. God has a message, not for Samuel, but for Eli, but he gives it to Samuel. And if you read the rest of the account, Samuel then shares that with, uh, with, with Eli. So God had given Eli a warning. Eli had refused the warning. And so now the judgment is pronounced. The judgment is pronounced. So what do you think this sin was that was so egregious? What was this sin that was so terrible that now God is going to judge Eli, judge his family, and these terrible things are going to happen, and God says there's nothing you can do about it. There's no sacrifice. There's no apology. There's no confession. You have crossed the line. This is it. What do you think? What do you think Eli did that was so terrible? Just think about it in your mind again. Uh, for a moment. Uh, speculate. What, would, what could you do that would be so terrible that God would pronounce judgment on you, your family, and tell you that there's no hope? There's no hope. Well, before I tell you what the sin is, let me tell you why it's important to us. See, the whole account, historical account of 1 and 2 Samuel that we'll uh, study in the next few months we're going to see a group of people called the Philistines pop up over and over. They're the enemy. They're the pagans. They were mean and cruel and bloodthirsty. They worshiped a pagan God. We're going to see the Philistines show up over and over and over. Eli was not a Philistine. And you might say, well, pastor, that's obvious. He's a, he's a high priest in Israel. He's not a Philistine. But, but there's something important to note here. Eli grew up in a God-fearing family. Did you grow up in a God-fearing family? Eli 100% believed in God. This is not some skeptic. Eli believed in God. Eli faithfully went to worship. Eli knew the Bible, and he knew the truth of God's Word. Eli was respected. He was honored by those around him, and he was a generally responsible leader in the religious community. But here we see that Eli is hopelessly condemned by the Lord. Now, here's why I'm interested in this. Because if Eli, from that background, can end up in that terrible place, I need to know how that happened. If Eli can, can go from that background to this hopeless condemnation of the Lord, I need to know how that happened. And I want to show you that today. I'll give you a little disclaimer. We could just skip forward in the story of First and Second Samuel, and we could look at maybe David and Goliath, and I could preach a message that says, if you just believe you can do anything, which is not what that story is about. We'll, we'll get to it in a few weeks. But we could do that. And listen, everybody would be happy. Everybody would be happy. They say, oh, that was such an uplifting message, Pastor. You encouraged us so greatly. I believe I'm going to go do something because I believe... This isn't that kind of message. We're going to look at this sin and it's going to be uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable writing this message. I just want you to know when you come and you spend an hour listening to me say something uncomfortable, just know I spent like 30 hours having to do it before. At least you only got one hour of it uh, when I got a bunch more. 
this is, um, this is uncomfortable, but we, you and I need to know Eli's sin. Eli's sin. So in one sense, there was just a sin, one sin that Eli committed, and we'll see that. But in another sense, this was an accumulation of sin. It was one step that led to another step that led to another step. In one sense, this is a compounding sin. And so let's, let's walk through those steps to get to the sin that brought this uh, consequence. So I'm going to walk you through five compounding sins of Eli. And as I said, it's really one, one will build on the other. We'll go through some of these pretty quickly. Uh, but sin number one, a failure to listen to God. Failure to listen to God. This is easy to see. Why do you think God gave the message to Samuel when the message was really for Eli? Why didn't God give it to Samuel? Why didn't God just tell Eli? Well, the implication, the strong implication is because Eli wasn't listening to God. That's why God had to give it to Samuel because Eli wasn't listening to God. Eli had a failure to listen to God. Uh, Just an odd juxtaposition when I was reading this account over and over and over it's amazing when you read something a number of times you'll see things that you might not notice on the first reading but in chapter 2 verse 22 uh, we read it a moment ago I think now Eli was very old he heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and so he hears what the people have to say but then you go to 1 Samuel 3.10 and the Lord has to speak to Samuel to give a message to Eli. Eli wasn't listening to God. He's listening to everybody else. He wasn't listening to God. That was number one. Number two, a dismissal of God's warnings. Not only did he not listen to God, that's step one, but that will then lead to us dismissing And in his situation, it ended up with him dismissing God's warnings. Uh, Eli had been warned. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 30. Therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord. So this is before God spoke to Samuel to give a message to Eli. This is when God is speaking more directly to Eli through a prophet. It says in verse 30, chapter 2, verse 30. Therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. I did say that your family and your forefather's family would walk before me forever. God said, I I had made you some promises and I was going to do it. But now, this is the Lord's declaration. No longer. This is it. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disgraced. This is God, though this isn't the first time God has given him this warning. But this is the final ultimatum. God says, this is it. I made you a promise. I'm prepared to keep it. But if you're not going to honor me, then you're going to experience some consequence. And what did Eli do? He just ignored it. He acted as if God was not serious in his warning. Now, why do you think Eli would have done that? Eli, man of God in some sense, and knew God's word and the history of God's sovereignty, why would Eli do this? Well, a little bit of speculation, but I wonder, listen closely to this. I wonder if maybe he grew so accustomed to the things of God that he lost 
the fear of God. He was in the tabernacle every day. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you can just get so used to something that, um, that you fail to appreciate its value. I've, uh, I've been studying for a couple of months uh, woodworking. Uh, I, uh, I want to learn to be a woodworker. I have proved in the last two weeks that I'm pretty poor at it <laughs> as I've taken a shot or two at it. But I've, I've been studying. And the way I've been studying is I've been watching a bunch of videos. YouTube, there's a million videos. And I've watched almost all of them. And um, I watch videos, a lot of how-to videos. But I've also, as a person who has put his fingers in a saw more than once, uh, I have watched a bunch of safety videos. And here's what I've learned. As, I mean, I'm an amateur, but um, I'm not even yet an amateur. That's my goal. Uh, but here's what I've learned watching all these safety videos. A lot of guys cut their fingers off in the table saw. It happens all the time. I think it said nine times a day, a man in his home cuts his fingers off in a table saw in America. So I don't want to be one of those. And uh, so here's what I've learned. The people, the men who cut their fingers off in the table saw are not the newbies like me. They're not the people who just bought a table saw and are, I mean, this won't sound very manly, but are a little bit scared of it, okay? Those guys don't cut their fingers off. Why? Because they're careful. They got, uh, you know, a push stick that's this long. <laughs> They're standing on the other side of the room and shaking a little bit, but they, uh, you know, the guys who cut their fingers off are the guys that've been doing it for years, and they've just—they're good at it, and they've gotten comfortable with it, and they get lazy about the safety precautions, and they cut a piece of wood, and they reach over to grab another piece of wood, and they set this hand on the table saw and off their fingers come. Here's what I want you to see. Sometimes we can get so accustomed to something, we fail to appreciate uh, the danger. And I wonder if Eli got so accustomed to being around the things of God that he lost the fear of God. Church, listen, we're in danger of that. I'm in the church every day, most every day. You come every week, most of you, and, and we read our Bibles, and, and, and we, we pray, and we sing, and we serve, and, and all those are good things. But we need to be careful that while we're around the things of God, that we don't, we don't lose the fear of God. We recognize that God, that God has a wrath, and that God hates sin, and we need to live with a healthy fear of the Lord. Listen to what the New Testament says. Hebrews 10, it's a long passage, but I'll read it quickly. Uh, Hebrews 10, 26, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. It's talking about people, Christians, people, followers of God, go on sinning, go on sinning, just, just God will forgive me, God will forgive me. We're so used to that. We go on sinning. He says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy, 
based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think I will des- one will deserve who is trampled on the Son of God and who is regarded as profane, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? How much more do we deserve the wrath of God when, when we just... When we just trample underfoot the precious blood of Christ. And then verse 31, that famous verse, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living living God. Let's don't be so accustomed to God's word that we allow allow it to remove the fear of God from our lives. And you might say, well, Pastor, that didn't sound like Jesus. You know, I appreciate your passion on that, but but I'm, I'm a Jesus person. Well, listen to what Jesus said. Jesus spoke of hell and the wrath of God more than anybody else in the Bible. Did you know that? Jesus, when he confronted people one time, actually two times in the temple who were abusing uh, the practice of worship, disrespecting the place of worship, the Bible says he turned over the money changers' tables and he drove them out. But I was, I was looking at this, and I, I think I said this maybe to my Sunday school class last week or somebody. I noticed something here recently. Not only did he drive them out, it says he drove them out with whips. But not only does it say he drove them out with whips, it says that he drove them out with whips that he fashioned himself. Premeditated whip driving. That's what that was. Jesus is also the one who said, don't fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell, Matthew 10, 28. See, I think the first sin, Eli failed to listen to God, but then secondly, he dismissed God's warnings. Number three, selective condemnation. I'm going to skip. You can go to noeldeer.com tomorrow, and uh, there's a longer version of this message on paper there. Uh, But let's go to number four, reverse devotion. Uh, Devotion is honoring God above all things. You know that, to be devoted to God, to have devotion for God, to honor God above all things. Uh, To honor God above people and riches and achievements and amusements. To say, God, you are first and you are above everything. Let's, Let's just talk about vocabulary a moment. I can say that many flowers are pretty. I can say that flower is pretty, that flower is pretty. But I can't say if I'm in a, uh, around a bunch of flowers, I can't say that many flowers are the prettiest. Does that make sense? I can't say that's the prettiest flower. And that's the prettiest flower. And that's the prettiest flower. Why can't you say that? Because that's a superlative. Pretty S to me is there's just one, right? There's just one. This flower ranks above, in, uh, above all the other flowers in this place. It is the prettiest flower. That is the prettiest person. That is the strongest person. There can only be one est, E-S-T. There can only be one strong est, pretty est. So when we honor God as God, listen. We're not just commenting on his beauty or his power or his strength. We're not just saying God is, is good or God is strong. When we honor God as God, we're honoring him with a superlative. 
we're not just saying he's good, we're saying he's the goodest. I mean, I, I know that's not good grammar, but we're not just saying God is strong, we're saying he is the strongest. We're not just saying he's wise, we're saying he's the wisest. So you can really only have devotion for one thing. You can, you can love a lot of things, but you can only have devotion for one thing. What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Well, what did Eli do? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 29. And this one is underlined in my Bible. I don't know if you're a Bible underlier, underliner, but if you're ever going to underline something, this is the sentence right in the middle of verse 29. Why then? Do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings? This is a message from God through a prophet to Eli. Why then do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? And here it is. You have honored your sons more than me. We'll just stop there for dramatic effect. That's the part I want you to hear. The accusation from God about Eli was that you have honored your sons more than me. There's nothing wrong with honoring your sons. I think uh, my three daughters are great, but the problem comes when you honor something more than you honor God. When you allow something to be a rival to God in your life, I wonder how many of us have there are some rivals to God in our life. Yeah, we, we, we love God. You wouldn't be here if you didn't love God. But is there something that we honor that we love more than, more than God? There was for, for Eli, for Eli. Now let's go to the, to the fifth sin because this is where I've been aiming the whole time. The final sin, the sin is that he tolerated sin, tolerated sin. Now look at chapter three, verse 13. He says, I told him, this is part of the message that God gave to Samuel to give to Eli. The verse we skipped a while ago, I told you we'd come back, here we are. Chapter three, verse 13, I told him that I'm going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity that he knows about his sons are cursing God. But don't miss this. The sin, the sin that brought down Eli was not necessarily a personal sin. He did something he shouldn't have done. It's that he knew about sin, but he tolerated it. That's what crossed the line with God. His toleration of sin. The Bible never says or even suggests that Eli did any of these bad things. We, uh, we didn't read the verse uh, a moment ago. I think I skipped over it. But Hophni and Phinehas, there was all kind of sexual sin in their lives. No, no implication that that was true of Eli. Eli didn't steal anything. Eli didn't do any of those sins. He knew that those things were wrong. But he was aware that his sons were doing it. And he tolerated their sin. And that crossed the line. There's a danger that we'll be guilty of sin. We are guilty of sin. 
but the more dangerous condition is that we might be okay with sin. You see the difference? There's sin, and that's, that's bad. We're all guilty of sin. But the worst thing is that we are okay with sin. I wonder how this happened in Eli's life. I, I imagine it started with him hearing about his sons, that they had done this, they had done that, and, and I'm sure it bothered him greatly. Very, very upset about it. There's even some evidence here that he said something to them about it. You read the whole story. But he didn't do anything about it. He didn't remove them from the temple. There were other steps he could have taken. So he felt bad about it, but over time, he wasn't such a big deal. And then every day, I'm sure he was bothered just a little bit less by their sin until he finally just accepts it. Can I share a story with you that I'll regret uh, tomorrow when somebody sends me an email? Uh, Three or four years ago, I watched a television show, series of shows, eight or ten episodes in a season. Somebody told me it was interesting, it was entertaining, so, so I turned it on, I watched it, I won't tell you which one, but uh, there was no nudity or anything connected with that in the show, but, but I started watching it and there was some pretty coarse language, and it just turned my heart when I heard it. You can find another pastor if you need somebody holier. But I kept watching it. I kept watching it. And it was entertaining. It was that. But it just turned my heart. Well, and I watched episode two and three and four, and I watched the whole season. And you know, by the end of the season, the language didn't seem so bad. In fact, I... I probably didn't even think about it when I watched the last episode. I justified my sin by saying, well, I would never say those words. This doesn't tempt me to say those words. So I can just look past them. I mean, I know that's foolishness, but that's, that's uh, the foolishness bound up in my heart. Okay, so I finished the season. As I said, it wasn't so bad at the end of the season. Then the next season comes out, a year later or something, I don't recall. And so... My wife and I sit down to watch the first episode, and uh, the language I just was so horrible. So we cut it off early into the episode, and I confess my sin, and, um, and I regret that I did that. I regret that I led my wife to do that. But here's the lesson how it connects with this. It wasn't that the language was any worse in season two, episode one, it's that I had just learned to tolerate it a little bit at a time. And by the end of the season, I didn't even, I was fine. I mean, I still would have told you it was a sin, but I was fine with it. And it wasn't until there was that space of time that the Lord just renewed my heart. And when I saw it again, it just was shocking. But see, that's how tolerance works. It's a little bit of sin that bothers us a little bit, but allows us to go to a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, and eventually we don't even notice it. Listen, every Christian sins. 
If you say you don't sin, you just sinned when you said it. And I'm not excusing sin. But as a Christian, when I sin, God is in us, struggling with us, helping us to overthrow that sin. The Holy Spirit is working to form the character of Christ in us. And if you're fighting hard against that sin and confessing it and coming before the Lord and and, and seeking God's help and God's strength, the Lord is with you in that. But when you come to the point when you're just okay with it, when you give up the fight, that's the real danger. Let me read chapter 3, verse 13 again, part of the verse. I told him that I was going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. Not for his own sin, but for the sin he tolerated. Are you tolerating sin? Are you doing something that you shouldn't be doing? Watching something you shouldn't be watching? Saying something? Allowing something? And you're just okay with it? Tolerating sin. The great sin of Eli, this flawed leader, is that he learned to be okay with sin. And that's a danger for us, whether we've learned to be okay with the sin in our nation, we've learned to be okay with the sin in our families, if we've learned to be okay with sin in the church, we've learned to be okay with the sin in our lives. That's the danger. Now, I'm out of time, but I'm not going to skip this. Uh, let me tell you the rest of the story. First Samuel chapter 4, I won't read this uh, because likely we'll spend uh, next week here. But they're battling the Philistines. They've lost a battle. Philistines have uh, whipped the army of Israel. So they retreat and they get a good idea. Well, they thought it was a good idea. They said, let's go back and engage with the Philistines. But this time, let's take the Ark of the Covenant with us, this piece of furniture in their worship, uh, place of worship. And they thought, well, I'll tell you next week what they thought. But they take this Ark into the battle and... uh, and they, they're defeated. And the ark is taken by the enemy. And uh, then a man brings news to uh, Eli. He's not in the battle. His sons have gone in the battle. In fact, they took the ark. And uh, he's waiting to hear how the battle has gone. So if you look at chapter 4, verse 17, let me just read a little bit of this. The messenger, this is the person who has fled from the battle to bring news to Eli. The messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines. And also, there was a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Sons are dead. What was the prophecy earlier? You and your family will die. The sons are dead. The ark is gone. Look at the next verse. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli's very upset. Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate since he was old and heavy. I wish it didn't say that. I looked for a version that, that, that I... His neck broke and he died. The judgment of God, just as it was prophesied. Now, all that was for what reason? Because he tolerated the sins. He was okay with the sin. But I want you to see what happened next. Uh, Surprise ending here. Uh, And a little bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, 
Verse 19, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news about the capture of God's ark and the death of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came on her. So she's, she's giving birth. She's emotionally wrought because of uh, the death of her father-in-law, her husband, and the ark is gone. As she was dying, the women taking care of her said, don't be afraid. You've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. But she regained consciousness, apparently, because verse 21 says, she named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Don't name your kid Ichabod. Referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. And then just to put an explanation point on this, verse 22 says the same thing. The glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the ark of God has been has been captured. Um, Hophni and Phinehas dead, Eli's dead, ark is gone. The glory of God, the, the manifest presence of God is gone because of tolerance. I noticed something here that I had never seen before when I was studying this this week, you may already have known this, but the word departed, it says it twice, verse 21 and 22, the glory has departed. The Hebrew word is most often translated exiled, not departed. What's the difference? Uh, Departed means you leave. In a moment, we will depart the church, but to be exiled means to be driven out, to be driven out. I think this is best read. The glory of God was exiled. Listen, you want to drive the manifest presence of God away from your life and your family? Tolerate sin. It's not that God will depart. It's that you will drive him out. Ichabod, that's what happened. But I told you we'd end with Christ. I think there's a verse right in the middle of this whole story that's key to everything. Look back to chapter 2, and I promise I'm closing. Chapter 2, verse 25, there's a question. Eli is confronting Hophni and Phinehas a little bit about their sin, and he asks a question, not because he wanted them to answer. This is what he's struggling with. Eli's struggling with this. Verse 25, chapter 2. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. So if I, you know, bop Tom here in the nose, you know, God could intercede between us. Uh, But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? I want you to recognize what a question this is. Eli is just frustrated because he knows what his sons have done. And he says, who can intercede We're hopeless. We've offended God. My sons have offended God. Who could intercede between us and God? There's no hope. And you know what? He's right. He's right. If we've sinned against God and we have, there's no hope. Who can help? Who can intervene? Who can intercede? Who is so right with God that he can help reconnect us with God? 
If Tom and I end up in fisticuffs down here, somebody who is friends with Tom or me needs to come in and, and, and make this thing right. But, but who's, on, who's on good terms with God? If, if we have sinned against God and that drives us away from God, then there's no way to ever intercede. There's no way to ever reconcile. And Eli was right to ask that question. But we know something Eli didn't know. What is that? Listen to Romans 8, 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ is the one, Christ Jesus, you see this on the screen, is the one who died, but even more has been raised. And he also is at the right hand of God. What does it say? He intercedes for us. When I studied this, tolerance of sin, I mean, this, I promise you it's harder to study it than it is to hear it. And um, I had to confess a lot of sin, a lot of tolerance. And, but the good news is, I'm a child of God, and I have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. He, Jesus, is the one who intercedes for me. Eli asked a question, and it was a good question. When you sin against God, what hope is there? And the apostle Paul answered it, Jesus, Jesus. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, that means there's never been a time in your life when you've said, God, I'm hopelessly separated from you because I've sinned against you. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross as the perfect son of God he died for me to pay my penalty for sin. And I trust that that's enough. And I surrender my life to you. If you've never done that, you could do that today. You could do that today. I don't, I don't mean for this message on tolerance to just, to just drive you to despair. I mean for it, God means for it, to drive you to Jesus because there is the answer. And if you've never trusted Jesus, listen, you are hopelessly separated from God. That is your only hope is Jesus. I invite you to turn to Jesus. If you've turned to Jesus, listen, this message ought to make us shake in our boots when we see the seductive deception of tolerance and the danger of this. But it too ought to lead us to Jesus, that we have been saved and forgiven, and we should ask Jesus to root out all the tolerance in our lives. Head bowed, eyes closed. Father in heaven, may you be honored in our lives because we don't tolerate sin. We will sin until we're with you in heaven, but we don't have to be okay about the sin. Father, show us, shine your light on areas where we have grown tolerant of sin. And then lead us to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond.